Welcome to the Faith FX Podcast. I'm Bernie Vandewall. I'm Mark Buchanan. And this is where faith and life meet. So it's been a year, Mark, uh, and uh, normally if we were getting together, I'd ask you where you've been, uh, and uh, you know maybe that's a great question to ask you still anyway. So, so what you've been doing? I have been sitting in my basement for 11 months, um, and I don't know what month it is. I don't know what day of the week it is. Right. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting, Bernie, because I was in France when mm-hmm. right. Uh, right. We, we realized we had a pandemic on our hands, and I was supposed to be there for three and a half months, and I ended up 12 days into that trip coming home. That trip was part of a, a whole whirlwind of travel I did back at the beginning of 2019 or 2020 rather, uh, two trips into Asia, a couple into the this, this States uh, and then a couple trips into Europe. And then there, I'm, I'm living in Europe. And so suddenly abruptly, I go from a guy who's like every other week on an airplane right, to sitting a lot in my basement. Yeah. It must've been the same for you, right? Well, it was. I was, when this all sort of came crashing down, I was at meetings in Toronto, and I was supposed to jump on a plane to Amsterdam. Uh, and uh, I was in Toronto for about four or five days, and, you know, things begin to emerge, and I'm thinking, I don't want to get go in if I can't get out. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I remember having to make the whirlwind uh, phone calls to the travel agent and uh, booking cancellation and rebooking and all that. I think I probably still have a credit on that somewhere. Uh, but yeah, you and I were guys who traveled a, a whole lot. Uh, I in used fact, to in 2020, yeah. we met up at Toronto Airport, Pearson Airport. I was coming oh. to New York and you had been in Toronto doing some stuff. And remember, yeah. we, we met up and, you know, just had a chat. And yeah. in the world was kind of normal then. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Right. And you and I, we, we travel a lot. I, I used to say that, that my Nexus card was the best $50 I ever spent. Uh, now it, it just sits in my wallet and acts as ID. I, you know, I haven't used my Nexus card in, well, 11 months. So do you miss it? You know, uh, a little bit, uh, but you know, I, I, I miss the adventure. I miss the adventure. But I mean, as you and I both know, uh, the last 11 months uh, here at home, you in your basement and I in mine has been an adventure of, it, of its own, of, of its own kind. It, it really has. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, first didn't miss the travel. And then I realized that I had built up something of an addiction to it. Yeah. And this last nearly a year now has been re reorienting myself spiritually, physically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, relationally with, with my wife. I mean, if you're getting on a, a plane, you know, every other week and going off to some place, you can avoid yourself and avoid a lot of your stuff uh, quite easily under the pretenses of, I got, you know, I got to go <laughs> Right. And yeah. so I was stuck with myself. I, you know, Cheryl and I are empty nesters. And so we're kind of in each other's space all the time and, and figuring out yeah. all that. But, yeah. but right. you're right. It's, it's been, 
in the end, it's been a really beautiful healing thing, though I'm still quite anxious for COVID to be over. It very much so. And, and you know, uh, COVID to be over, certainly on the one hand, and, you know, it's related, but for the restrictions we're living under that seem to fluctuate from day to day, uh, looking forward to those being over. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of what we're going to talk to our guest about today, Preston Manning, uh, who recently wrote an open letter uh, to the Attorney General and Minister of Justice, uh, and to get his take on why he wrote the letter, uh, what he uh, says in the letter, uh, and uh, the, uh, the hopes he has for the letter. It's a very good interview, and uh, he has uh, not only his strong opinions, but there's a winsomeness mm. and a deep intelligence and, and especially a, a profound Christian faith informing how he thinks about this. And so I, I, I'm very inspired by this interview that we're about to hear. I should explain, we, we haven't done this in over a year. This is right. our first podcast since then. And lots of stuff happened, not the least COVID that uh, yeah. put things on, on hold for a bit, but we felt that this letter that, Preston wrote quite recently uh, about how the government's handled coronavirus and COVID would be a great way to come back and reintroduce faith effects. You know, to Canadians of my generation, an introduction to Preston Manning might well seem unnecessary. I mean, he's played such a significant role in the shaping of Canadian politics over the last few decades anyway. Now, undoubtedly, I think he's probably best known as the founder and lone leader of the Reform Party of Canada, right? For those of you who don't know, a forerunner of today's National Conservative Party. Uh, in Parliament, he represented the constituency of Calgary Southwest and for a time was the leader of the official opposition. Now, that's not all. Uh, numeral, uh, innumerable accolades are out there. Uh, he's a member of the Order of Canada for one but for many of us, probably the most important thing about Mr. Manning is that he's a man of profound Christian faith, and it's a faith that sits at the center of who he is and uh, that informs all that he does. And that, I think, Mark, is uh, reason enough to invite him here to join us on Faith Effects. Yet today, uh, we actually have him here to talk about his recent open letter to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General for Canada. And uh, for those of you who didn't know, an abridged yet still pretty powerful version of that letter recently appeared in the National Post. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to have a conversation with Mr. Manning about that letter in a moment. But Preston, Bernie mostly introduced you according to, you know, in, in, uh, along the lines of your CV. He <laughs> included your personal faith, but uh, when you think of yourself, what comes to mind? Well, that's kind of an awkward question. I, I don't think of myself <laughs> in that objective sense very often. But uh, I, I guess one of the things that comes to mind, uh, Mark, and, and this is true of all of us, is the, how, how one is shaped by the family into which one was born and where one was uh, raised at from a very early age. And in my case, I, I was raised in an evangelical Christian home uh, and in a political home. My father became premier of Alberta when I was one year old and didn't uh, get out of that until I was 26. So, so uh, and unlike uh, many people born into a, 
uh, religious home, I, I never had any difficulty really accepting the basic tenets of the Christian faith, the reality of God, the deity of Christ, the necessity of a spiritual new birth uh, for deliverance from evil. My challenges were more on how does it relate? How does my faith relate to the, the practical world? How does it relate to science? I started out in physics at university. How does it relate to business? I had a, a management consulting firm for 20 years. And then, of course, how does it relate to politics? So I, I've been shaped a lot by trying to answer that question. How does my faith relate to the situations in which I find myself? Very good. But Bernie, I'm just thinking, he sounds like a practical or pastoral theologian, not one of you systematicians. So. Oh, I, I, I thought he was sounding like a theologian who <laughs> are basically practical people. So uh, That's great. You know, uh, our time is, is relatively short, so I, I'd like, being a practical theologian, would like to get right to sort of the heart of the matter. Uh, back on uh, January 26th, the National Post uh, published your open letter to uh, the Honorable Mr. Lametti, the uh, Minister of Justice and Attorney General, uh, where you call on the Canadian Parliament to address what you note are significant violations of charter rights, uh, violations uh, created by the imposition of COVID restrictions, really at all level of governments, and we've all seen that. Now, for those of you who have not yet had a chance to read through this thoughtful document, I'm wondering if you could provide us with a Coles Notes version, a, a brief summary of, of its content and, it, and its purpose. Sure. Well, I start out by saying uh, I'm in no way implying that the coronavirus isn't a serious uh, uh, problem and that it demands action by the government. I myself, because of my age and and some lung history in our family, I'm a part of a vulnerable group. So I make that point. Uh, but secondly, I, I do make the point that many of these health protection measures that have been adopted by the governments uh, end up infringing on every single right and freedom that is supposedly guaranteed in the constitution from freedom of speech to freedom of association, of course, to uh, freedom of uh, religion, to democratic freedoms, to uh, the right of Canadians to uh, pursue the gaining of a livelihood. And what I uh, propose to the minister is that I, I believe the, the government, the parliament, the cabinet should uh, undertake efforts to establish a, a better balance between the protection of health and the protection of those rights and freedoms, uh, a better balance between concern for the physical well-being of Canadians with a, uh, equal concern for their social and economic and financial well-being. And uh, so I make that point as strongly as I can. And then uh, I listed four or five measures which I believe the government could undertake that would help achieve that balance. And uh, so that's basically the substance of the letter. Very good. Have you had a response from Mr. Lametti? No, not from Mr. Lametti. I also sent it to members of the uh, Standing Committee of the House on Justice and Human Rights. So I have not heard from them. I, I have heard from a lot of other people, who, uh, many of whom share those concerns. Uh, and uh, also a number of people have sent me data that they think would help uh, achieve that balance. But I've not heard anything from the minister or the committee. I'm not sure that I will. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. uh, 
when with the rapid increase, even since you you posted uh, wrote and then that letter was published in the National Post and other newspapers across Canada, there's been a rapid increase in these variants of coronavirus. Would that shape or change anything that you would write now if you were to sit down today and write that letter? Well, in this sense that, uh, you know, there's that old saying that the, the height of foolishness is when you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results, that this is, is foolishness. And uh, so I would think if the government's going to develop some alternative strategies for dealing with a second or a third or fourth wave, uh, whether it's related to mutations or not, that this would be a chance to strike a better balance in its response to what's ever going on in the future, rather than just doing what it did uh, in the past. So I think that would be my response to that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, and probably nobody does, but I've had the opportunity to sit in on a faith leaders consultation group with the Saskatchewan provincial government. Uh, and uh, they more inform us than, than dialogue with us, but we're happy to get that. Uh, and there is some, some going back and forth, but I've noted to them, uh, I said, you know, mathematically, uh, the, the measures you have in place have to work if people observe them. Uh, and I, I know you talk about this to some degree in the letter. Uh, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about the balance between uh, legislation and enforcement and, and, and your perspective on, on that? Well, I think whatever you're doing, you, at the end of the day, you have to carry the judgment of the, the public, particularly the, the rule is supposed to be in a democracy that even if you're in government or politics, you, uh, you ask first and tell second. <laughs> In an autocracy, you tell and you don't ask. And if somebody asks, you put them in jail. And uh, I, I don't believe there's been enough asking Canadians, particularly in this first wave, what have been the uh, implications for you? What, yes, has it helped your health situation, protect your health? Uh, that's probably true for the vast majority of people. But what have been the other impacts that this is having on you? I, I worry about, the, and I have friends that are in the, the health sciences and in the health practitioner business about the health department having a, a very narrow conception of what a human being is. It's a body. Uh, but, uh, you know, a human being is a lot more than just a physical being. A, a, a human being is a set of relationships. A human being has, a, as we believe, a spirit and a soul, not just a body. Uh, a human being has an economic and social and financial dimension to their life. And I think a lot of these health protection measures have focused solely on that one dimension. The fact that the that the uh, the politicians and the health authorities refer to cases, which is an even narrower conception of the human being. Uh, I do believe there's a need to look at these other dimensions as well. And when it comes to implementing what you're going to do, what are the implications for these other dimensions of people other than simply their health? I want to push that a little further, explore that a little further. A part of this is profoundly poignant and personal to me. My mother died in October, and though she was dying in a hospital for one week, a six-hour drive away from me, I was not allowed to visit her. And so she, she left this earth without my saying a final goodbye. And I actually was angry because 
that this is the second wave of uh, COVID. And I felt that the, the government and the Health Institute had enough time to figure that piece out. Yeah, yes. And so part of, uh, I mean, really the heart of your letter, Preston, is the, that the government, at least in Canada, maybe in other places, but let's just talk about Canada, has dealt with coronavirus and COVID and the pandemic as fundamentally they've they've dealt with it or reduced it to a health issue or a physical yeah. health issue, yeah. um, rather than and so therefore deferred it entirely to health professionals rather than a, a more holistic approach. Uh, mental health professionals and economic professionals and business professionals and et cetera. Uh, I think that's a powerful argument because that's been, uh, you're, you're not the only one to level that, that if we had approached this as a multi-dimensional crisis, yes. Yes. we would have thought through things a di bit differently and got ahead of a few things. This is my question coming out of that. Is it too late this far in to revisit that? Or are we so locked into thinking of this as a health, physical health crisis? Well, I, I don't think it's ever too late. It's better late than, than never to, to change the approach to this. And, uh, you know, one, one of the results of experience Experience is that you you're supposed to learn from your experience. Maybe, maybe there's some of the things you'll learn, or there's a better way of doing this. But uh, I think we can learn from this experience that there has to be a better way. The, the point you make, I, I heard social scientists say this at the very beginning when social distancing was proposed. They say yes, there's a place for that, but understand that too much social distancing for too long creates social isolation, particularly for vulnerable people, particularly for people that are struggling with mental health, with addictions and things like that. And you've now got communities in Canada where the death rate from suicides and overdose, uh, drug overdoses is far greater than the deaths from uh, COVID-19. So I, I think your, your point is, is well taken. There's a need to broaden what started as a health emergency has become a public emergency with far more dimensions than just health. And I, I argue in my letter, I think that means broadening out the scientific consultation. Yes, consult the health people, but consult the social scientists, consult the economists, consult the, uh, there's a lot of other science can be brought to bear on this and uh, broaden that out and including, you know, you, the governments have put this, the management of this crisis basically in the hands of the health department. There are other departments of government that have actually studied emergency preparation, how to deal with emergencies much longer and much more deeply than many of the health departments. The emergency measures agencies in all the provinces, there's a, a federal department of uh, emergency preparedness, the, the military mm -hmm people have a whole system of triaging where the principle is you expend the majority of your resources when there's a crisis on those that are most vulnerable and then you work your way out rather than trying to provide uh, sort of universal protection to everybody but not spending enough time and effort on those that are most vulnerable. So th there are other resources that can be brought to bear on this if the perspective is broadened out. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's very interesting uh, when in this panel that I'm part of, uh, they've grouped us with the business response team and we actually deal with the business response team uh, who ultimately seem in, in our instance, they always answer to the health department. Um, one of the things I'm noticing now is uh, as a 
I, I guess a churchman bureaucrat. I'm a district superintendent of uh, 70 plus churches in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Nunavut, and a little bit of Ontario. Uh, is that the, one of the crises our pastors are facing is that they're stuck in the middle between polarities. Those people who say responsibilities, 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 we have a responsibility, shut down, absolute shutdown, keep shutting down. And those people at the other pole who uh, want to talk about freedoms and rights, and uh, we have a right uh, to meet together, we have a freedom to come together. Uh, I think you blend this well in your letter, but I'd like to hear a, a little bit more on, on what you would say. Uh, how should people of faith look at this relationship between uh, individual freedoms, uh, individual rights, and uh, our responsibilities? Well, yeah, that's a huge question, but uh, I, I think there's a necessity to respect both. This is a very Canadian answer. Why did the Canadian cross the road to get to the middle? <laughs> Where's the middle on all of this? But there, there's a need to respect fundamental rights and freedoms, and, and there's a, a necessity of being responsible in the exercise of those rights and freedoms. If you go to the Constitution for guidance on this, it does say that you've got these rights, it lists them all off in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but it says, you know, there's a place to limit rights. And the grounds on which you can limit them is you have to prove that it is, demonstrate is the actual word, demonstrate the reasonableness of the limitation in the circumstance that you're talking about. Now, I, I would argue that the governments to this point have not demonstrated that reasonableness, mm -hmm. particularly to the people whose rights are being limited. But if they are to do that, then that's the route that the Constitution provides. Right now, the way the limitations are being justified is mainly by appearing, uh, appealing to fear. The, the, the great motivation that the governments are using is fear. Scare the hide off of people. Tell them if you do not observe this policy or that regulation, the consequences are going to be dire. And, and unfortunately, there are political consultants out there that say to political people today, look, the cheapest, quickest way to get support for your policy, whatever it is, is to scare the hide off of people mm. by, by pointing out dire consequences if your position is not adopted. And the Constitution does not say you can de demonstrate the limitation on rights by using the fear factor. It says you have to demonstrate their reasonableness. And uh, so I think that's one way of trying to balance. Uh, here's the rights. Here's the limitations. But can the government demonstrate the reasonableness, particularly to the people that are affected? President, I've seen that the chief motive of you writing this letter to the Attorney General and Justice Minister was uh, coming back to the charter that you felt that this was an assault on the charter and an assault on democracy, that there'd been a, a, a suspension of democratic principles and rights uh, to deal with this health crisis. Um, could you speak about this growing concern that we're seeing in a, a lot of places that democracy is very fragile right now throughout the world? Well, I can come at that in two levels, Mark, just to come to the charter. The weakest part of our charter, and I, I was around when Pierre Trudeau was uh, was promoting this, my, so was my father. We actually made this criticism a long time ago, <laughs> late 1960s. The weakest part of the charter is its reference to democratic rights. According to our charter, the only democratic rights you have is the right to vote, 
the, the right to run for election, for the parliament to be required to sit at least once a year, and for its term to be limited to five years. Sections three to five of the charter, that's all it says under the heading of democratic rights. Now, if you consult tradition, older statutes, uh, democratic culture, our democratic rights include far more than that. It includes the right to be represented in a democratically elected assembly. It includes the right that laws don't become laws until they carry the judgment of a majority of people in an elected assembly. It, uh, it includes the fact that governments can't spend and borrow money without getting the consent of the democratically elected people uh, of the, uh, the majority in the parliament. And all many of those rights, when you shut down the parliament or shut down the legislatures during a crisis, you, you infringe upon all of those rights. The, the House of Commons, and I, I sat in the House of Commons, it, on average, it sits for 120 days a year. Last year, it sat for 86 days, and many of them were meaningless days. But So that's a 30% reduction in the functioning of parliament at a time when you would think it, it would be even more necessary for it to meet. So I've maintained that there are no circumstances under which you shut down your democratic institutions in a free and democratic society. To take extra health protection measures, if you want, have them meet in a skating rink where they can sit their desks 25 feet apart. You know, if the masks aren't good enough, put them in spacesuits, but don't shut the place down. So that's the, uh, on the, the particulars of the, how this COVID thing has been handled with respect to infringing on democratic rights. That's the point. But to, to get to your main point, uh, I, I believe the, um, the great ideological contest of the 21st century is going to be between state-directed democracy as promoted and practiced by the Communist Party and, and the government of China. And they're very proactive in, in promoting that concept, and they call it democracy, versus citizen-directed democracy which is practiced however imperfectly in the Western countries. And, and right now, th that Western version of citizen-directed democracy, I, I think is in great trouble. It, we've, we're losing the confidence of our own, our own people. There's a, a, a contempt for our, our democratic institutions, politicians uh, held in, in low regard. So there's a lot of work has to be done to defend and build up that citizen-directed democracy, particularly in competition with this other model. So in light of that, do you think that what's the recent development over the last uh, four years in the U.S. has driven uh, Western democracies closer to what you're calling state-run democracies? Well, I don't know if it's, uh, I think what's happened in the U.S. has tended to even more discredit the, uh, the Western uh, conception of citizen-directed democracy, re reducing the faith of people that that system works and can uh, address their problems. I, I don't think people are going over to the other model, but they're just increasingly disillusioned with the model that, uh, that, that we have. And, of course, the polarization in the U.S., uh, which characterizes their political arena and which is starting to happen here doesn't help but doesn't get at any actual uh, solution. My, my worry in Canada here, I keep in touch with a lot of the pollster polling companies. We used to use them. 
And I've been asking them periodically over the last year, is there, is there anything showing up in the polls that people are alarmed about the fact that their parliament's not functioning or their legislature's been virtually shut down? And the frightening thing is, at least a couple of posters I've talked to say, there's not a flicker of indication that people are concerned about that. One fellow told me, I said, I think the parliament could disappear for two years and people wouldn't even notice it, let alone protest it or care about it. And uh, that, that is a symptom that our democracy is in, in big trouble and something has to be done to renew and restore it. Great. So we started early uh, in my introduction by identifying you as a man of Christian faith. You talked about that yourself. Um, and, and so I'm going to ask sort of a high-level question because that's what Mark accuses me of doing all the time anyway. So <laughs> I, I might as well live out the caricature. Um, how does your how does your faith inform your not only your politics but even more basely, uh, in, in light of the stance of some Christian leaders who actively distance their faith from political engagement and encourage their parishioners to do the same? How how do you understand faith and theology uh, to intersect with political engagement, political participation? Well, I start, Mark, with uh, I believe in the concept of the, keeping the institutions of the state and the institutions of religion and the institutions of the faith community separate. But to me, that does not mean keeping people of faith separate from political participation or political involvement. The, the iron law of democratic politics is if you choose to not involve yourself in the politics of your country, you will be governed by those who do. And if you have a disagreement with those who do, say the majority of those of the secular orientation and don't to give a, don't, don't even have knowledge that there's a spiritual perspective on things, but if you don't participate, you will be governed by those. And uh, and so and I, and I take that the, uh, the the role I see for the church is is the communication of the gospel, of uh, strengthening the faith of the believers through teaching and, and sermons and, uh, and classes and, and involvements, and uh, preparing people for their participation in the processes of democracy and the economy and everything else. But, uh, and I see that as how we, we act as salt and lay, uh, light. But I, I make that big distinction between institutional involvement and individual involvement. And uh, I think Christians have an enormous contribution to make in the political process on a whole bunch of fronts, which I could uh, get into. Like, you know, the, the whole Old Testament is a book about law mm. and about the, the benefits of law and what can be done with it, but on the limits to law. The idea that you can perfect the society by adhering to law, you know, the Old Testament prophets who believed in the law ended up by saying, unless that law can be written in the hearts rather than in statute books, it won't achieve the result you want. So Christians can play a role as lawmaking, uh, Christian service, bringing Christian ethics to bear in the political arena where, where ethics are, are, are challenged every day. Uh, I think there's a huge role for believers, but as, as believers rather than as representing an institutional arrangement. So let's w wrap this up with, if you could give us a couple words that are deeply practical. I'm imagining someone listening to this and they're that average person. They're that ordinary citizen. They're a believer, but they're saying, okay, I am concerned about the erosion of democratic rights. 
I am concerned about the failure to address coronavirus and the pandemic in this more multidimensional way. I want to be a good citizen, but what do I do? Would you have a word for them? Well, I, I actually wrote a whole book called Do Something. 365 is my commercial. 365 ways you can strengthen Canada. But I, I would say in relation to this particular problem, have you communicated your concern to your elected official? I know this sounds utterly simplistic, but I, I run into all kinds of people who bend my ear for half an hour on their concerns about this. I said, have you contacted your member of parliament, your, your member of the legislature, your representative on city council or your municipal council and communicated to them, A, your concern, and B, I want you to strive to find balance between protecting my health and protecting these other dimensions of my life. If, if, that's one simple thing that everybody can do. And uh, I think that is a starting point. The second thing, and I would end up on this, uh, uh, when Jesus sent his crew out to do public work for the first time, as recorded in Matthew's gospel, uh, he told them, among other things, but I think this was the great guideline, he told them, be wise as serpents and gracious as doves. And I used to paraphrase, he did not say be stupid as pigeons and vicious as snakes. He said be wise as serpents and, and gracious as doves. And so I say to uh, Christian people, if you're going to involve yourself in the political arena, whether it's just in this business of appealing to your uh, elected representative or doing something more, representing an interest group or whatever, be sure it does have that wisdom and it has that graciousness which Jesus demanded of his people when he sent him out to do public work. Great. Well, th thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom and sharing that wisdom with us. It, it was a real treat uh, to, to spend this time with you. I'll just let you, people know that that book, Do Something, is available at <laughs> online at all your favorite bookstores. Uh, and you'll probably have to order it online because your bookstore yeah. might not be open these days. But anyway, uh, and uh, it was a, a, a real treat. Uh, Preston, having you with us. Uh, thanks uh, for being here. Thanks for uh, sharing with us. Uh, and uh, we've been so happy to have you on uh, another edition of Faith FX. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Audio Jungle.